There is no understanding the person I was in that springtime without understanding the place where we lived and loved each other. I knew it intuitively then and have always believed it since. We are creatures of place. Severine and I may not have been born in Cincinnati like Hannah and Gregory, but we were nonetheless an expression of the city of Seven Hills. Somehow our hometown's namesake is part of us and our story and all the mythical association he brings with him. Throughout the rest of the city's 52 neighborhoods and uncounted suburbs, there are at least a dozen more places that include hill or some version of mount in their name. One always has a sense of being either up or down, and even the topland is not flat. The uneven landscape of Cincinnati divides the neighborhoods and suburbs sharply from each other, giving the city a parochial and cliquish character. And the hills cut her off from the rest of the state of Ohio. Cincinnatians are not really Ohioans. They belong to the river and the hills that define their lives. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, and with me today, for the second day in a row, I have author Jonathan Geltner, author of Absolute Music and fellow Inklings fan. We talked yesterday about The NeverEnding Story as um, an important book about fantasy as well as a fantasy book. Jonathan has written an important novel about fantasy literature as well called absolute music how are you doing jonathan i'm well how are you chris doing well doing well thanks so much for joining us his debut novel absolute music available now from slant books one of the things that i love about this novel jonathan is that you do something very similar to what the inklings do in that you re-mythologize landscape and different though from what the inklings do in that the landscape that you bring a kind of mythology to a kind of layeredness to or recognize the layeredness of is the landscape of american cities such as since Cincinnati, as you just read, where you tying it to the myths of the founding of Rome and also Pittsburgh, which I really enjoyed because I lived in Pittsburgh for about two years. I'd love to hear why you chose that particular part of your book to read. I'd love to hear more about that sort of project for you and what it means. It's kind of the project behind all my writing, the confluence of three things, geography, fantasy, and metaphysics, religion, experience of, of another world, divine world in some way. Like the narrator of this novel, I grew up in Cincinnati. I went to college there. I, I met at the end of that time, the woman who would eventually become my wife. I, I, I didn't appreciate Cincinnati until after I had left it. I lived in Boston briefly, and then I went to Chicago for grad school. It was when I was there that I discovered the work of Wendell Berry and suddenly realized, oh, maybe it's okay and actually even good to be from some provincial place. At least when I was growing up in Cincinnati, the, the general feeling 
that one had was that Cincinnati was in the middle of nowhere and it was useless. And, and what you would do if you had any creativity and ambition was get out. And a lot of people wanted to go to the West Coast somewhere, Portland or California. A lot of people actually ended up going to New York that I grew up with. And, you know, I just kind of absorbed that when I was there. And it was only after I myself had left that it occurred to me that maybe that's not the best way to think about the region that you come from. And that sort of began my my obsession almost 20 years ago with the sense of place and the way that it's many layered and um, involves religious questions and questions of history and whatnot. The thing I'll say about the Inklings is that, you know, so these are a bunch of guys in Oxford in the middle of the 20th century, and they're not exactly from there. Um, but close enough, I guess Lewis was probably the, the furthest afield, right, in Northern Ireland. But we know them for, we appreciate them for interest in, comment upon, an actual production of what we now call fantasy literature and all of its theological dimensions as well. And that kind of writing always has splendidly important places, important splendid places, maybe I should say. Geography is an incredibly important component of, of fantasy. It's it's You can't have good fantasy writing without vivid and carefully structured geography. Hmm. Fantasy is the externalization, the sort of making geographical of a psychological or spiritual quest. So of course, in their writing, they have places that are the kinds of places that one encounters in fantasy literature. And those inklings were all very attuned, as we were discussing in the previous episode, to the natural world, the varied topographies and climates of the earth. And they wrote about it with precision and celebration. And it's, it's a wonderful aspect of their writing, especially Lewis and Tolkien. But what one doesn't tend to encounter in that kind, that mode of literature is much attention to or appreciation of backwaters, provincial places, places that are not stylized to some extent. It simply goes with the terrain. It's not really a criticism of that mode of literature or anything. It's just, it's kind of how it's set up. Right. In realist fiction, in literary fiction, whatever you want to call it, which is the, the primary category in, into which my novel fits, even though it has lots to do with fantasy, you have an opportunity you have some space in which to delve into the kinds of places in which most people actually live actually come from, even if they've left them behind, maybe to go to some cosmopolitan cultural center and the kinds of places to which people from cosmopolitan centers often go in order to discover artistic inspiration of one kind or another. Not always, not all of them, but, but many of them do. That's one thing to say about fantasy as a literary genre, which is especially well um, sort of epitomized by the inkling writers and thinkers vis-a-vis -vis literary fiction, realistic fiction, which is the kind of writing my novel participates in. The other thing to say is that there is an abyssal divide between the new world and the old world. If you're an American, and, and this is true, even if you're a Boston blue blood, or I don't know, descendant of some maybe I know less about this, but descendant of some southern aristocracy or something, someone who's been here for hundreds of years from Europe. So if you're a new worlder with European ancestry, primarily European ancestry, settler European ancestry, as opposed to immigrant, there's this chasm that divides you from that old world of your ancestors. 
because in America, there are no roots. We don't go down deep. Francis Parkman, this amazing historian in the 19th century, begins his, his epic narrative history, France and England and North America. It's a seven-volume account of the 150-year struggle between, you guessed it, France and England for the possession of North America. Incredible prose and, and pioneering history for his day. He begins that account saying that the origins of civilization in the New World, which is all we know, we know nothing else than that, they lie within the clear light of history. There's no mythology. There are no ancient legendary tales of saints and wizards and or anything. It's just, it's all there if you want to look for it in history. And that makes all the difference in the world. It made all the difference yeah. in the world to someone like Thoreau, who perceived a deep need for deep history, for that mythological history. And he didn't live long enough to even hardly begin to fulfill this project, but he wanted to find that in the stories and the mythologies of the Native Americans. Hmm. He did the best he could to to meet and research in his time. And it's a very American feeling. For a while, you get people like Whitman or, or other people who, who are gung-ho about the newness of America and who don't feel like America, American identity and culture is sort of missing anything by not having that legendary deep past. But eventually you get Americans who realize we are we are missing something pretty terrible all we have is history history is terrible history is bleak history is slavery history is the genocide of native americans history is right. the civil war I mean, history is just horrible on this continent. It's unremitting <laughs> horror. And no people can be content with that. And we are a people. Right. We want to be a people. Um, we need to be a people if we're going to stick together and be a country. So we need a mythical past, too. We need a legendary past. Yeah. And there have been various different attempts throughout American history to, to provide that. There's all different ways you can get at it. So part of what I'm doing in Absolute Music, at least as far as the places are concerned, is my own very humble sort of initial attempt to give some depth to a couple of places in the new world that mean something to me, Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, which happen to be, and there are a handful of places in America and North America that are storied, that do have some romance about them, the older places. But even still, like I say, as like as Parkman said, that it's still history, really. Yeah. It doesn't go back far enough. Now, the interesting thing is that someone like Tolkien is thinking about England and is thinking something almost similar. He's thinking it's, it's not ancient and mysterious enough. I need to right. Yeah, I need to actually make it more ancient and more mysterious. Uh, and then from that is born this yeah. legendarium, which most people don't really think of in connection to the real world and to England, but very much was connected to it and a need for experiencing Englishness in England in a particular way that Tolkien felt yeah, more than any of the other Inklings. Although Charles Williams would be another great example. I mean, his, especially his, his poetry, right. his fiction, he also was trying to recover a, a, a deep English past, a mysterious and legendary past of Britain, maybe more Britain in his case. Right. love that. I, I want to keep going and talking about this because I think it's fascinating. And I, I'd love to orient this whole segment of, of 
you know, this particular episode of, of the podcast around, around that question, how do we enchant American cities and American landscapes or find what is enchanting about it? I'd like to back up really quick first, though, and just kind of give an outline of what your book is about. Right. I know. What in the world am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so my, my book is uh, mercifully short. It's less than 300 pages. Absolute Music is uh, it's a first person narrative. It's written in the voice, voice of, a, of a former musician. Composition, composition, music composition student who, at least in the narrative, the only name you get for him is McPhail. Uh, so <laughs> really his, his surname, but it is a, a significant name. The main storyline covers just a year from the autumn of 2017 to the autumn of 2018. And in that year, what sets the whole novel going is he's out walking with his wife one evening in their neighborhood in a, in a Michigan town. He looks up at this tree, which he thinks is a honey locust, and for for some reason, he remembers a tragic event, the death of a girl when she was 14 years old, and he was 14 years old, a girl he was in love with named Hannah that had happened 22 years prior to that that evening. He's out walking with his wife. And, and this sets in motion this year of like uncontrolled memory and even sort of visionary, fantastical type experiences occasionally for McPhail. And, and that, that has terrible effects on McPhail. He's, he's in a bad shape to begin with because he's a writer now he's a fantasist he's trying to write the sequel the contracted sequel to a, a fantasy he's already published and he's having trouble with that so he has a rough year basically and he doesn't write the fantasy instead he writes absolute music um he writes it in music composition notebooks or at least the first draft of it he's thinking about music and theology and philosophy and his past and it's got a sort of proustian character to it involuntary memory which proust famously talked about and made a 4000 page novel out of like i say my novel is less than 300 pages so <laughs> not necessary to write a 4000 page book to get into this stuff so it's a literary novel in that sense it's one of the many literary philosophical influences that's very obvious in the book is dante and so mcphail is that Dante's yeah. significant age at the beginning of the Commedia. He's in his middle 30s. Just like Dante, he is in a dark wood. He's lost, he's confused, and he's, his trajectory is, is going to be downward. Um, this is not the Commedia. He gets as far as the beginning of Purgatory, I guess you could say, by the end of this, if you wanted mm -hmm. to uh, use Dante as a model, but certainly no farther than that. So he does have a rough time of it, but not a hopeless time of it, and he has his flaws. But it's it's that's the kind of novel it is. It's a first person narrative written by in the voice of a new father, a man of Jewish heritage who's a, a convert to the Catholic Christian religion and struggling with that. He's prone to digression and speculation and sort of just these lyrical riffs on all kinds of things, including right out of the gate, a riff on the never ending story, which we were talking about in the last episode. And he'll go on to talk also about the Princess Bride. He also talks about Wings of Desire, wonderful. 1987 film same year as princess bride and all kinds of other music and, and things like that and painting um so he's an erudite learned guy and one of the problems mcphail has i think is that his his learning his education doesn't doesn't save him if anything it, it hinders his judgment it might even sort of 
um, aid and abet his his fall into sin. He's teaching at a kind of classical Christian school. He loses that job at one point. I don't want to give any more of the plot away. Than right, that. right. There's a plot. I swear there is actually a plot in this yeah. book. But the point is, he, he messes up over the course of this year. But uh, you're sort of tracking that and viewing it and his obsession with these sort of provincial American places where he lives and where he's from. In what I hope is at least a partially sympathetic <laughs> voice. Um, he obviously is a very flawed narrator, but also dealing, I, I, I hope, with some, some pressures that are more universal and uh, timely. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've read novels that play around with time for sure. Uh, this is this is one of them. It does it beautifully, but it, it's very much you know you 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 go from one moment to another moment to another moment, and these these moments kind of repeat and recur and form what feels like a, a kind of pattern um, through throughout the book. And the same happens with cities as well. Uh, it's called Absolute Music. It's arranged into suites. What's the relationship here between? music and time and cities. Structurally, the book is modeled on Johann Sebastian Bach's six suites for solo cello. McPhail was a cellist. So so there you have it. And uh, there's maybe not a whole lot of precedent for this kind of thing, but there's some. T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets is, is another example of a literary work that's composed in the manner of music. The term absolute music means music that, uh, it's a technical term, it really arose in the 19th century. It just means music with no linguistic apparatus no lyrics no program no, no association with a, a famous story or anything like that no title even that would denote anything other than the music itself so just purely descriptive titles like symphony number no. nine or whatever that's what the phrase absolute music means but of course absolute is a metaphysical term as well and mcphail talks about this and is conscious of this and it refers to the transcendent you know that which is cut loose from that is that is distinct from contingent reality. Maybe one of the most poignant images, bearing in mind that that can refer to any sense, not just the visual, but the most poignant images of, or versions, I should say, of, of what C.S. Lewis called the discarded image, the, the, the sort of pre-modern worldview, cosmos, is the music of the spheres, which is mm -hmm. not, exclu not exclusively Christian. It's sort of a Western thing. It's Greek, it's Jewish and Christian and Muslim. And it's this, this sense that if the cosmos is this created thing by God, it's ordered and it's beautiful. That's the word cosmos kind of means both. And and so it makes a kind of music as it is these concentric spheres that revolve and in and, and Dante and that motion, that sort of constant but regulated flux makes a beautiful music, the musica universalis, the music of the universe. And MacPhail, the narrator, knows all this, and um, it's a symbol for him of what it's like to live in an enchanted world, an enchanted cosmos. And he has, like any modern person, struggled to perceive himself as living in a in an enchanted cosmos and he's been more successful at some times than at others and this book happens to chronicle although after the fact um a year in his life when he failed at perceiving that enchanted cosmos and the consequence of his failure was a, a sin a fall into sin but it was also the creation of this book that you're reading absolute music hmm. an, art, an aesthetic artifact 
um, which I hope at least is a kind of beauty. And so I suppose at the at the heart of the whole thing is is the notion that um, out of dejection comes sometimes at least comes beauty. The, the, the dejection and failure and sin is is turned into into a good, into a boon. Yeah. And that idea, uh, which is basically the idea that underlies the the Western Christian notion of Felix Culpa, the fortunate fall, which comes up at the beginning of the book and is related to the never-ending story. That idea is, is sort of pushing the whole book, the idea that evil and failure and sin are hard, if not impossible, to actually justify in any rational, discursive, propositional way. But insofar as greater good is drawn from evil than the evil is itself, insofar as that they, it can be justified. So sort of the metaphysics of the, the project, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And, and one of the things that I'm really interested in uh, with literature is the way in which, you know, literature itself is an ordering. It's a building. It's organizing, putting things together. But very often it's a recounting of chaos, right? Um but, yeah. but in that recounting, it's also conquest in, in a way of, of, of that chaos, or if you like, a, a, a harmonizing, right? Um, so, that, so that you are finding symbols, you know, words, which become symbols for, for that very chaos that before had no, felt as though it had no organization, had no harmony, had no um, way to sort of speak of it, right? And it still might not necessarily completely convey exactly how someone might have felt in the, in the grips of various kinds of chaos in the, in their life. But, um, but there's a, uh, there's a, there's a way in which creating art is, is, is a way of, even if, even if like, you know, by the end, even if it's a tragedy, right? If, if it's like Oedipus Rex or, or a tragedy that's, that's oh, it even, doesn't matter. yeah, it's still encoding that chaos into, into something that has form, which is, which is, which is a kind of victory. Yeah. It's, um, it's the victory of art. So, and actually of liturgy too, any yeah. kind of reg regulated worship and praise. Uh, the, the common thing that you hear now is that we, we create meaning. We give meaning. And I've never in my life, even as a child, been able to, to go along with that long before right. I articulated why it just seems so obviously false. Like if, yeah. if I just thunk it up myself, then what's it worth? You know, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's clearly not anything. If there's a gap, if there's an aesthetic gap, there's a distance between two worlds. If there's a retrospective distance, this is why retrospective is so important to fiction, why, why fiction is fundamentally in the past tense. Then you're able to look upon that which has been in all its carnage and chaos and describe the order or some faint trace of the providence that is in it, that is woven through it and articulate that for somebody else and for yourself. And you can be more or less convincing. But, but that's what you're trying to do. If there's any sense that you're just making it up, you're arbitrarily, like literally, you're using your will to judge, to ar to arbitrate between <laughs> between events and 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 smash them into a narrative that you want it to be. Mm -hmm. You fail completely. Yeah. Do nothing for anyone, least of all yourself. You delude yourself. But if there is some sense that you discover, you unveil, it's apocalypse. Mm -hmm. You pull back the veil from what seems to be a random hellish chaos or just constant failure and sin. You pull back the veil from that and reveal, actually, this was 
building to something that no one involved in it could have understood and foreseen or perceived at any time. It's like the genealogies of Jesus in the gospel. Mm -hmm. What those genealogies reveal is that he does not have an immaculate pedigree. Right. He have an immaculate mother, depending on your dogmatic preferences, but does not have an immaculate pedigree. Right, right. And that is that is the revelation of providence. It, it's the, the apocalypse of providence. So fiction is doing that, but it can only do that if it's retrospective. Yeah. Or if there's some other way of introducing a gap, a, a distance to be covered so that movement can occur between where the reader is, maybe the writer, the narrative voice, and where the story is. Because it's in traversing that gap that you get to learn something. If you're just immersed, if you're just sunk down into the thing, all you are is entertained mm. at best. And this is something we've seriously lost sight of. And we we tend to grade things on how immersive they are. Right. But actually, and this, this sort of came up in the last episode, we, we started to talk about it, but the, those moments where you become aware that a fiction is a fiction, are not faults. They are supreme moments where the art redeems itself, where it exercises its redeeming function, where where you actually realize, ah, yes, I'm listening to a story, or I'm part of, I'm 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 perceiving a story, and it makes me realize, what wait, what is story? Story is me doing this thing that the that the Russian philosopher Solovyov called spiritualization of matter. It's this thing where you're able to behold that carnage as something other than just that carnage, raw nature, red in teeth and claw. It's it's a sacred role, and we have trouble talking about that. We it falls easily into grandiloquence and pretentiousness and, and a suspicion of hypocrisy because we suspect that the artist or anyone who's able to reveal that depth of reality must be sort of pure, spotless, uh, and of course they're not. And in mm -hmm. fact, it's usually terrible. Uh, <laughs> artists are horrible people, often <laughs> clerical classes of various kinds throughout history have often been comprised <laughs> of terrible people. Certainly now is no exception. And, and that comes up in the novel uh, with respect to the Catholic Church. But Catholic Church is by no means unusual in this regard. Um, that gets in the way of realizing this, but still the role of such people, uh, and, and MacPhail is, is a flawed, he's a sinner, he, he commits a terrible sin in, in the novel, and but he's still looking for that providential divine reality under the, the surfaces of things. And so the novel is kind of trying to explore just the ways that happens to what extent it's possible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I want to, I want to make sure to. I did really want to pick up on uh, the near the middle of the book after he's committed this terrible sin. Oh, the D and D part. Yes, yes, it's <laughs> it's written. You know, Dungeons you, and Dragons. You have this like you know beautiful poetic prose throughout throughout this. It's so meditative, so ruminative, very intellectual. You know, citing all kinds of you know great works of Western and and, and Eastern art and, and literature, and then smack dab in the middle, you've got Dungeons and Dragons campaign between MacPhail and some of his old his old friends. What inspired that? What what made you decide to just I'm gonna stick a D and D campaign in here? I mean, so everything I was just saying gets really heavy and sounds gloomy, and and you know, if like that was all literature was about, God, why would you why would you bother with it? Uh, why would you bother writing it? Why would you bother reading it? It's just awful. So I don't want to give the impression that my novel. I hope people are still listening. Uh, is <laughs> is is only like really heavy. Shit. It's fun and good to have fun sometimes. So. 
it's also based in reality. So what happens about halfway through the book is McPhail, like immediately after his worst moral lapse, goes and uh, although he's also actually just done a mitzvah, I mean he's just done he's done a good thing too. He he's sort of done his best to uh, to bury an, a, a last matriarch of his family, but. He, he goes up and hangs out with his old buddies, like lifelong friends, practically in, in the hills of South Ohio, sort of halfway. This is significant for the novel halfway, uh, although I don't really I mean, it doesn't really harp on it, but it's halfway between Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, right smack in the heart of the Ohio country. This is this region that, that, that doesn't properly belong in any of the usual uh, ways we, we sort of carve up the U.S. these days. They're hanging out in this cabin and they just basically just drink and play Dungeons and Dragons for three days straight. They also make music together. They, they actually perform music. And uh, it's written basically as a play. I mean, you just have the, for the most part, you just have the guys talking to each other. And yeah, they talk about all kinds of stuff all sorts of like philosophy and stuff intervenes, but they just, they play through a, a quest. They play through this Dungeons and Dragons quest. And it's a little unusual if you know that game, uh, insofar as all the player characters get killed, they get killed rather fantastically uh, at the end. Not not usually the way D&D quests end, but it's pretty fun for them. And I mean, I put it in there, yeah, to give the reader a break, to have some fun myself, to see if I could actually write that into a novel. There's a lot of reasons it's in there. And um, yeah, it's got all sorts of thematic significance. I, I'll say this, though. like So, so, and this is something I, I, I teach, too. I, I tell this to my students. This is a, an anecdote that I have found very interesting for, for several years now and this is where the that part of the novel comes out of so once upon a time i wrote a short story and i said to my friend who is the the dungeon master the dm in the group that i play dungeons and dragons with once every year just as happens in the novel i said to the guy who's the dm and they're they're not, they're very different from the guys in the novel this is not autobiographical but um, I said to him, let's do this quest. I've written a short story. I want you to make it into a D&D quest. So if you know the game, you, you, you'll, you, you'll already start to think, oh, my God, really? That's that doesn't sound possible. And if that's what you're thinking, you're right. So what he did is, is he wrote it up. He did the best he could to design a quest that was basically mirroring this, this short fantasy story I wrote. And, and that summer, we tried to play it out. We had three days. We don't drink as much as the guys in my book, or at least I don't, but we drink a bit. And, and we had great fun. We tried to play this out. We had great fun playing a three-day campaign. But what we actually played was very, very unlike what I had written as a piece of fiction. Very unlike. For example, it was so unlike it that the quest killed all of us player characters. This is not how I wrote the story. In the story, no one died. <laughs> the quest killed every one of us. It was it was tragic. It was pathetic. It was a complete surprise. We all died. I thought, okay. <laughs> <laughs> fiction and gaming are different things let me figure out how this works so then i decided to write up as a story what we had actually ended up playing and then to compare those two stories the story i started out with and the story of what actually occurred oh that's super fun and they could not have been more different it was absolutely me i ended up using a completely different style of writing so, so like in the in the in the first version of the story that i wrote that i gave the dm to work from I had an omniscient third-person narrator, basically a kind of a dungeon master figure. That's sort of the, the narrative strategy I used for the thing. And when I had to rewrite the quest, as it actually ended up getting played, I couldn't possibly have one narrator. It was 
it was it was just I couldn't do it. And even though I like object on sort of philosophical grounds, to <laughs> fiction that has multiple narrators, especially in like a short story, I had no choice. I had to use the POV. I had to use each player character, if you know D and D, as a narrator in turn, sort of like the way the Game of Thrones books is written. Uh, even though I don't like those books, <laughs> I mm. use them as a reference. And it was just an incredibly different experience as a writer, as uh, an enjoyer of fantasy in all its forms. It was just fascinating sort of three-part experience. And that kind of laid behind. And in, in an earlier version of this novel, which didn't get published, McPhail does that. Like the, the, the way that, that that quest moment in the middle of the book happens is McPhail writes this story and sends it to Gregory, the character who's the DM, and he's like, let's do this quest. And Gregory's like, you're insane, but all right, fine, we'll try. And then they try and they fail. And so it sort of mirrors my experience of trying to write Dungeons and Dragons as if it was fantasy fiction, which it just isn't. It really isn't. And every semester now that I teach, I I engage my students in a conversation about the difference between fiction and gaming, literature and gaming. And it's very interesting. I mean, I my sort of preferences and my own allegiances are very much on the side of literature, even though I keep up a, a tradition of, of doing Dungeons and Dragons, at least occasionally with old friends. But yeah, it's an, it's an illuminating contrast for me and uh and good for anyone i think who's interested in fantasy of any sort to consider especially if they have experience um either as a writer or as a gamer or both it's such a fun part of the of the novel and it, it is the place where you have, um, I think, I think the the most discussion of of Inklings folks, right? You've got they're talking about the the code was which is essentially the DAO. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It and, is the uh, DAO. Yeah, I mean they talk about and the DAO. they they talk about the discarded image and uh, yeah, and they talk I, about Tolkien and and yeah. uh, secondary world. Yeah, it's true. Yes, uh, it's interesting. I, I hadn't really planned it like that or been conscious of that, but you're right. The the a lot of Inklings ideas are explicitly referenced in that. Yeah, that that actually, it's interesting. So that suite of the novel is called Il Castello di Alta Fantasia, the Castle of High Fantasy, but which is from Dante. But originally, in an earlier draft of the novel, it was called The Long Defeat, which uh, is yeah. Book, and they referenced that uh, in a passage that I cut out. It's probably cheating to reference like an earlier version of your novel. That yeah, No, that's you that's but, great, though. But you might find that interesting. Yeah, And that's apt as well uh, for, yeah. for what I mean, happens just, to the campaign. Yeah, it's, it's in the campaign and McPhail's life at that point. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just... Uh, that that's the long defeat moment yeah. kind of i mean it, it really did remind me and i wrote this in the in the notes uh for the podcast it really did remind me of um i mean there you know there's some similarities too to like the symposium and various you know yeah. uh, dialogues and things but but it reminded me humphrey carpenter has this in in his book about the inklings has a recreation of an inklings meeting that kind of 
works like this where they're all kind of talking to each other and like you know ribbing each other and i gotta um, read that so i've read yeah. his biography of tolkien and i know he's the editor of the letters but i don't think i've read that he, he yeah i think it's just called uh, the inklings and, and it's from the 70s i think he got some stuff wrong but the but the recreation of the inklings meeting is just great you know it's got like tolkien getting upset because everyone's like well you know dwarves being a viking culture essentially they would bear they would burn their dad and tolkien's like <laughs> No, they they're not gonna burn their. <laughs> That's pretty but, funny. Uh, yeah, yeah, I gotta read it. Well, yeah, it sounds like a prime example of how reality gradually morphs into legend, not fantasy, but legend. And I don't know much about Humphrey Carpenter, but but I, I mean, I've benefited from his his works. Final goofy question because we're we're long past the end of the show. If the Inklings were a D and D party, what would their different races and classes, like professions, what whatever the other right. factors? Uh, I gave this some thought, and at first I thought Tolkien's got to be a ranger or a druid type person, kind of like Aragorn. Basically, your Aragorn is a ranger, and that's what he would be as a as a D and D character. But the, but I thought about it a little more, and I realized no, that you know that that makes sense because Tolkien had this incredible green sensibility I mean, of all of them the most i think even more than c.s lewis somehow yeah. um, he just had this incredible affinity for the created given world and, and it's and it's just it's what draws so many people to him certainly me and and he's a treasure for that reason but i thought about this and i thought no he's, he's got to be a halfling there's no way <laughs> that's a hobbit um it could they, be like trotter you know <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean like because the halflings get a lot of that. I mean, they have all of that greenness in them. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be an ant or a ranger to to uh, to get that. So so he's got to be a halfling and he's got to be a bard uh, because Tolkien was the best poet among them. That's my official and unalterable opinion because he knew Old English and, and Old English is still at the heart of modern English. Uh, that's yep. I, that's what I believe. I mean, as someone who studied both. So so he's a halfling bard. Tolkien's going to play a halfling bard, even though he studied the Norse, the Vikings and whatnot. That's what he's going to be. Now, Lewis, though. So it's actually Lewis that I want to make into the warrior the human warrior maybe even what's called a tank somebody who just can take a huge amount of damage who's just a tank you know uh, because and he's maybe he's kind of a scruffy paladin he was famous for dressing bad and and you know he didn't want to be a pretentious person and he wasn't a pretentious person i mean he was a wonderfully down-to-earth person from everything i understand about him and but i'd make him a human warrior and um, because he just had like incredible energy just look at the number of books the man published it's insane he only lived yeah. in the 60s right i mean like it's yeah. just and he had a busy full life in, in in so many ways certainly not blameless in a lot of ways but but mostly a very good man and and incredibly energetic and charismatic so i'd make him a, a chaotic good fighter human fighter Barfield, uh, so I'm taking the, the, the to be four people, and Barfield is going to be number three. Oh, and Barfield, and now of course he's enigmatic and weird and mysterious, and his thinking is extremely complex and, and brilliant. 
Um, so I'm going to make him an elf wizard with vast arcane power, but like incredibly low charisma and, and just like unintelligible to anyone he tries to talk. <laughs> so if you're on a quest with Barfield, don't don't have Barfield do the talking because he's just going to befuddle and perhaps infuriate anyone he's he's trying to talk to. <laughs> but he's brilliant nonetheless, brilliant and powerful nonetheless. And then, of course, the, the hardest inkling for anyone to deal with, and everyone says this um, in any context is going to be Charles Williams, um, an incredibly prolific writer like Lewis uh, and like Lewis, not very long lived by our standards now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the shortest lived of all of them. Right. And um, yeah. he wrote in many genres like Lewis, you know, far more than, than Tolkien and, and Barfield did. And he had great energy and charisma like Lewis, but he was darker. You know, he, he he was a little messed up in some ways. He had some fixations that were worse than than those um, I'm aware of for the other three. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, also genius in a lot of ways. And, and he certainly wrote some incredibly salutary things that that absolutely like the scent of the dove and a lot of his a lot of his nonfiction uh, i think is great and his pro mm-hmm. and his, sorry his poetry is actually quite brilliant but weird and yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah, he's also like slightly unintelligible uh, yeah yeah he's he's got he, he's yeah right he and barfield are like the weird un, sometimes unintelligible ones Lewis and tolkien are the, the public face the good the good ones you want to have a pint with and then and then barfield and williams are like the ones you don't want to get stuck having a pint with in some <laughs> forsaken corner of the pub and you don't know how to leave but so i'd say for williams like yes for his writing but the man himself like yeah. everybody loved Williams. People wanted to have a pint with him. So so Barfield and he are, are equally unintelligible, but Barfield has low charisma and Williams has very high charisma. That's right. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. And he, but, he like he'd be getting in trouble with ladies. Right. Yeah. He'd get in trouble with ladies. So yeah. and he he'd be some kind of like cleric, which yeah. is a combination of warrior and priest. But I don't think he'd be serving a an unambiguously good deity. He would be he'd be serving some kind of trickster light and dark combined because he was fascinated by the occult and yep. and the dark side of things and um yeah i mean I, yep. ultimately i'm thankful for him but yeah he he had some some messed up sides too well that's awesome thanks so much that was really fun yeah thank you so much jonathan for for coming on the show and for just lending us your your time and your wit and your thoughts and and thank you for your book it's it's a wonderful book listeners i i recommend thank you for um, reading it out yeah again it's absolute music it's by jonathan geltner and jonathan where can people find you and and just get kind of a sense of what you're doing the book absolute music along with prior translation i made of paul claudel's five great odes is available on amazon Amazon or Barnes and Noble. You can find Absolute Music uh, with uh, links to other places to buy it on the Slant Books website. I also have a Substack, which has not been terribly active, but I have some long form stuff on there. Jonathan Geltner dot substack.com um, and i uh, plan on making that much more active in 2023 and it's going to have a lot of work that is going into both of my current book projects one of which is an actual fantasy yes north america and another is a book about fantasy and it's about specifically or it's sort of rooted in thoreau on the one hand, North American side, and Tolkien on the other. So you'll you'll find stuff about both of them and, and many other people related to fantasy and the sense of place at jonathangeltner.substack. <laughs>
Cool. Thank you again, Jonathan. And thank you, listeners. We will see you next time. For those who would like to learn more about Jonathan Geltner's book, including an exclusive 10-minute excerpt from Absolute Music, check out our ever-increasing YouTube channel, The Inklings Variety Hour on YouTube. Thanks for listening. full of joy, unscheduled on a decent plan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.